If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, and that can be found on page 919. There's some Bibles under the chairs if you want to grab one of those. Page 919 in the Black Bibles, Acts chapter 10. We're continuing this series we've called Meet Jesus. Pictures from Luke and Acts. Uh, Just to remind you again, Luke and Acts were both written by Luke, so there's kind of a continuation of themes In Luke, we got to see Jesus interacting personally with people, those kind of one-on-one stories of Jesus talking directly to people. Now in the book of Acts, we see Jesus' messengers telling people about Jesus. Uh, And so again and again, we're getting to be reminded of who the real Jesus is, because we all kind of have our different ideas. We have our different um, thinking, different myths, different Sunday school tales uh, of who Jesus is. We want to be reminded of what the story really is from Scripture. This story that we're looking at today is a very important story in the context of the book of Acts. It's repeated multiple times. It's told in Acts 10. It's told again in Acts chapter 11. It's told again in Acts chapter 15. And really, even in Acts 10, the story is told like three times in a row just within that that chapter. So I'm going to try to retell some of it, not read every bit of text, and then kind of look in more detail at certain portions of the text. Today, we're calling it Jesus for the Wrong People. Jesus for the wrong people. God is always trying to break down our stereotypes of who's in and who's out. Uh, And so that's something he's always teaching us. What happens is when you meet Jesus, you meet Jesus by saying, I'm wrong. There's something wrong with me. I need Jesus to save me. And then what happens is you enter into a relationship with him, and then you start to forget that. You start to think, I'm special. I'm a part of God's people. And those people over there are bad, and and Jesus could never do anything with them. And so we always have to be reminded, no, we're all the wrong people, and Jesus changes us into being the right people by his grace, by what he's done for us. That's really how the transformation takes place. So we'll see this lesson being learned by the early church. Their specific issue that they had to overcome was they believed that Jesus was really just for the Jews, God's chosen people, and that these other races were kind of beyond his reach. Uh, We know now, um, thankfully, after years of God's history of reaching other peoples, we're all those other peoples, right? We're all the other tribes. We're all the other ethnicities that the Jews originally didn't think Jesus could reach. And that's who we are now, all these different tribes. You know, within us, maybe there's 10, 20, 30 different ethnicities represented just in this room. Well, uh, those are the people that originally the Jews were like, "I'm I'm not sure if Jesus can reach those people, you know? We are those people, so... Uh, this is an interesting lesson for us, but as I said, we need to be challenged that there's, there's still people that we sometimes think God can't reach. So in, in chapter 10, it starts with this guy named Cornelius. As I said, I'm going to kind of try to tell you some of the story, and then we'll start reading at verse 22, but I'll try to tell you the first 20 verses. Cornelius was a centurion. He was a part of the Italian cohort, so he was an important leader in the Roman Empire, and he was a Gentile, which means he was not a Jew. He was an outsider, but... Luke messes with our mind by showing us that he was actually a really good dude. You know, we all have these people that seem like, oh, they're the wrong kind of person, God doesn't love them, and then when we meet them, they're actually a pretty good person, and that's the way he tells the story. And this guy is praying to God, and he has a vision during his prayers, and God tells him, you need to send for this guy named Peter so he can tell you the rest of the story. He needs to tell you the rest of the story. So, He has this vision, and then it cuts to Peter. Peter is praying on a rooftop. Peter gets a vision as well. Peter is told, 
Peter, rise up and eat these unclean foods that no Jew should eat, right? They had all kinds of purity laws, ceremonial laws, where they were told some foods are clean, some foods are unclean. And that was a part of how they symbolized God's holiness. And Peter said, I never eat unclean foods. And God had to tell him multiple times. He said, what God has called clean, do not call common. And he kept repeating it and kept repeating it. Um, And so Peter was like, okay, God, I'll do whatever you say, right? God had kind of broken him down. And then the men from Cornelius come to Peter and say, hey, come tell us the story about this Jesus. So he'd given a vision to Cornelius. You need to know about this Jesus guy. You need to send Peter to come tell you about it. Then he gave a vision to Peter. You need to go talk to this unclean Gentile. And then the men show up. They bring in Cornelius. We'll pick up the story there. Verse 22. They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of, by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, talking about Peter, and some of the brothers from Joppa then accompanied him. On the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. As you can understand, an angel and a vision appeared to Cornelius and said, go get this guy, he'll tell you an important story. And and Cornelius is thinking, this is some kind of God or some kind of angel from God. He's worshiping him. What does Peter say? Verse 26, Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He'd had that vision. said, don't call what I call clean, unclean or common. Verse 29, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. Behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa. Ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. You've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So he's like, all right, I had this vision. He told me to send for you. Here you are. We're ready, right? Which if you're a follower of Jesus, you love these situations where they're like, okay, tell me, tell me about him. Tell me about this Jesus. So it says in verse 34, Peter opened his mouth. It's kind of a classical Greek literature way of saying, here comes the speech. Peter opened his mouth, okay? He opened his mouth and he said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. That means God doesn't prefer this tribe to that tribe. He shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Let me pray, and we'll ask God to help us. We've got a lot of text, a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, We're going to need his help. Let me pray. 
God, we thank you that you're good to us. We thank you that you communicate with us. This story tells us, and, and we know even from our own experience, that you haven't left us in silence, but you speak to us. You speak through beautiful spring weather. You speak through incredible sunsets. You speak through the stars. But most importantly, you've, you've given us very specific speech in the scriptures about who you are, that you're a good God, that you've given us your son Jesus to save us from ourselves, from our own sin. So God, help us to listen. We confess our need of you. We confess our, um, just our habit of not listening to you. And we ask that you would help us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I was looking at these visions that God gave to Cornelius and also Peter, it was reminding me of something I've heard about, and maybe you've heard this, that oftentimes, especially among Muslim people, they will have these visions of an angel or of Jesus telling them to invite this preacher to then tell them about Jesus. Have you all ever heard, heard of this, seen this in news reports, some of you, a few of you? Okay. Well, I've heard this a lot, and so I was asking one of my friends that worked among Muslim people for many years, he lived in India, he lived in Malaysia, and I said, basically, is this for real, right? Because that's not necessarily the world I live in, right? I'm not always having dreams and visions and miraculous experiences. And so I was like, is this, is this for real? Like, I've read about this, but I, you know, I'm just wondering, you've, you've worked with these people, and he was like, yeah, this is, he said it's totally for real. Like, he's, he's known many people that have had these experiences. He said this, and I'm just going to go ahead and quote him. He says, I've discipled many guys that have had visions and dreams. Visions and dreams are common in the Muslim world because, he says, at least in his opinion, they're simply more open to it, right? They're just open to God speaking that way. We're kind of not, right? That's, <laughs> that kind of freaks us out a little bit in the Western world. He says, within Islam, the spiritual world is a dimension in which they live every day, all the time. In the West, when we say someone is demon-possessed or has a dream or a vision, we just roll our eyes, right? We're too smart for that, we think. In the East, when they say that, they look at you matter-of-factly and simply say, tell me about it. So here we've got this uncomfortable situation. And what I want to do for us is I want to try to bridge the gap a little bit and say, um, as uncomfortable as we are with dreams and visions, the dreams and visions that my friend hears about with his Muslim friends... um, they're always telling people, you need to hear the message. Invite this missionary to come tell you the message. Go find a Bible where you can read the message. You need the message. And so what I want to do is kind of try to bridge the gap between cultures and say, man, dreams and visions are weird to us. It's not, we're not real comfortable with that, but we have something in common. These people that have dreams and visions, and those of us that maybe that's not our normal everyday experience, both people groups, both cultures, we need the message. The hope is in the message. The hope is in the gospel, the story of Jesus, right? Um, we know just from creation that God is there. We walk outside and we're like, man, God's big. God's awesome. I owe something to him. The message gives us the specifics. God is a holy God. We failed to live up to his holy standards, but he sent his son Jesus to, to pay for our sins, but also to give us his eternal life through his resurrection power. So that message is really where the turning point is. So there's going to be a lot of things that kind of uh, push us and pull us and are confusing in this story, but it's all, going to, it's all going to center around the message itself. So the first thing that I want us to look at as we move through the story of how this message unfolds is wrong people or wrong culture. How do we define who the wrong people are? And are, is there such a thing as wrong people? I kind of spoiled it for you earlier when I introduced the sermon. I said, in reality, we're all the wrong people because of our sin. 
But what happens is just the way we live our daily lives, we start to think those other people are the wrong people. And I have a special place in God's heart because I wear a certain kind of clothes or I shop at a certain store or I was raised in a certain neighborhood and we forget. No, we're all, we're all alike condemned because of our sin, because of our heart problem. And what makes us right is what Jesus has done, not our cultural practices. And so one of the things Christians always need to be working on, this is lifelong learning, is we always need to be separating what really matters to God from what is just kind of cultural preferences, right? Churches, churches are bad about this. We often just add layers of tradition. We add, you know, do things the way we do it, and we say, this is what you've got to do be, to be saved. So, you know, we can start off being a church that proclaims Jesus is ultimately the issue, and then we can drift into saying it's the pink carpet, and you just can't know Jesus unless you have this awesome pink carpet. Like, as you can see, we're destroying some of it. But um, I, use, I like to use that as a silly example because we're all like, well, that's stupid. The pink carpet's ugly. But that's, that's what happens, right? That's what happens in the life of the church. We begin to say, no, this is the way we do things. And you can't know God apart from how we do things. And the, the Jews were struggling with that. And here God is challenging them. He's pushing them. He's pressing them. So let's look back at the story again. Um, in, in the story, we've got this guy, uh, Cornelius. And I want to read some of the specifics. I hadn't read this part earlier, but look at 10 verse 1. Look at chapter 10 verse 1. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian co- cohort. And listen to this. In verse 2, it says, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continuously to God. So I mentioned this earlier. Sometimes there are people that you consider to be in the wrong religion and in the wrong culture. And what happens when you actually get to know them? You start to think things like, oh, they're kind of a nice person. I was expecting, because they're in this other religion, that they were an evil axe murderer. But they're actually nice, you know? And you start to get confused about your categories, right? And that's what Luke is doing here. He's, he's introducing us to Cornelius, and he's saying, this Cornelius who, as we'll see, still needs to meet Jesus. He hasn't, he hasn't completed his journey yet, but he's actually a pretty good guy. This guy's a good guy. He's praying to God. He's seeking God. He's pursuing God. He's, he's giving gifts to the poor. He's praying continuously. It says he's a devout man. Other translations say he's a, a pious man. Basically, they're saying he's, he's a religious good guy, right? This guy's a good guy. And so Luke is kind of stirring the pot, and he's, he's teasing us. He's, he's messing with our categories because we would come along and go, but he hasn't met Jesus yet, so he's not that good, right? You know, I mean, we're just kind of we're confused about how this unfolds. Look at verse 3. It says, about the ninth hour of the day, so that's the time of prayer. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. About the ninth hour of the day, he's now practicing the regular prayer like the Jews do. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. I don't know if you remember this from last week. In in chapter 7, there was a big dispute with Stephen, right? Because they were saying, you're speaking against the temple because you're saying everything revolves around Jesus. And Stephen was like, well, you know, the temple's great, but God can meet people wherever he wants to. You know, he's not dependent on the temple. And here we see that same theme come up again because here we see God appearing to Cornelius apart from the temple, and it's using temple language. It's using sacrificial language here where it says, 
your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So this is the language that's used in the Old Testament of the Old Testament sacrifices. God uh, would smell the sacrifices, the the incense and the smoke and the aroma would, you know, would drift up to God. And so this is kind of sacrifice language. The daily sacrifices would happen at this time. He's praying at this time. Angel comes to him and says, God is recognizing your prayers and your alms. Now again, I just want to clarify. We, we would say in reality, he still needs to meet Jesus. But again, Luke is messing with our categories saying, look at this guy. He's the wrong person. But, but is he the wrong person? What, what is God doing in his life? And so he tells him, and this is what leads us to the next part of the story. He says, send men to Joppa, bring one Simon who's called Peter. And so he's told, you're still lacking something. You, you, you still need something. Ultimately, we'll, you know, we'll find out. He, he needs Jesus. He needs Peter to tell him about Jesus. But Luke is purposefully messing with our categories and saying this guy that we thought was the wrong person, maybe he's not the wrong person, and he's showing it through different lights. Now, the story moves on, and it gives us this vision of Peter as well. Look at verse 11, chapter 10, verse 11. Peter, he's also praying in the, in the evening or in the afternoon. Peter saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He's showing him unclean animals. So in the Jewish system, right, they had certain animals they should eat and certain that they shouldn't. Certain animals they should sacrifice, certain animals they shouldn't. And this was all, again, flannel graph. It was like a visual communication, dramatic communication that God gave to his Old Testament people to communicate that God is holy. God is absolutely pure. And the only way to approach him is through sacrifice, right? So there's a message that God's communicating through all these symbols and ceremonies. The book of Hebrews communicates to us that that's finished now that Christ has come because he's the ultimate embodiment of everything that was symbolized in the Old Testament. Even though Jesus had explained that to the apostles, even though they knew that at some level, it was just still hard to get, right? It's just hard for us to let go of our culture. It's hard for us to let go of our habits and the way we do things. So God is communicating very strongly to Peter here through this vision. And he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. The word kill can actually be translated as sacrifice. So he's again using kind of temple sacrificial language here. What does Peter say? Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter is saying, no, God, that's not a part of my culture. That's not my tribe. That's not how we do things. I'm too good for that. And he answers, voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. Verse 16 tells us this happened three times, and then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So there's like this back and forth over and over again, three times. Peter has a vision. God says, don't call the things I've called clean, unclean, or common. Peter's like, no, I'm calling it common. I'm not going to touch it. It's nasty. So the vision keeps coming down. The voice from heaven keeps coming down. It, has to tell, it just has to beat it into Peter's brains, right? And I would argue experientially that's where we live as well. There's things that God wants us to grow in and God has to just kind of keep telling us again and again and again. It takes us a while to, to change. We have cultural habits. We have these boundary markers we've drawn. We're like, no way, I'm not, I'm not talking to those people. Those people, you don't understand, God, how unclean those people are. I'm too good for that. God says, no, I want you to talk to those people. He's like, no, no, no I'm not going there. No, I want you, I, I want you to do that. Uh, I was thinking about a way that we could relate to this because 
we don't necessarily get as non-Jews, uh, I think most of us are non-Jews, we don't necessarily understand these boundaries, right? Um, so I thought maybe a way to think about it would be when you go into a restaurant and it's just gross and you turn around and walk out. R- raise your hand if you've ever done that, right? Have you ever done that? You've walked into a restaurant and you're like, I'm just not going to eat here. I changed my mind. I'm just not feeling it, right? And you walk out the other door, I have a picture here. If you're easily grossed out, don't look at the picture. Um, this is a picture of a cockroach. Um, I've been to restaurants, and I've seen these guys at restaurants. Now, first of all, I just want to apologize if you're from up north, because if you're from up north, you've like never seen one until you moved down here, so I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Up north, you have like the little black ants that are nice and don't bite you, and you know, you don't really have real bugs up north. Here we've got real bugs, and a lot of them are nasty. And uh, if you walk into a restaurant, though, and you see one of these bugs, you're just like, okay, I'm grossed out. I don't, I don't want to do this, right? And that's, I, I think, at a heart level, that's kind of where Peter is going. Peter's like, no, God, I don't want to eat the nasty stuff. The voice from heaven says, no, I've called it clean. No, I don't, I don't want to do that. That's gross. And he's saying, don't call gross what I've said is clean. Now, just to, just to clarify, I don't know that there was a cockroach in the vision that came down, right? Um, I'm thinking, you know, pork is one of the things they don't eat. My, my wife was uh, teasing me a little bit when, when we went to the Middle East. I, had a, I have a bacon t-shirt, and I was, I was wearing it underneath as an undershirt, but it got really hot. You know, it gets hot in the Middle East. I took off my button-down shirt, and we're walking around some, uh, some historic ruins, taking pictures, send one to my wife. It gets posted on Facebook, and somebody says something to her like, isn't that a problem that he's wearing a bacon shirt in the Middle East? Because, you know... <laughs> Muslim sea pork is unclean as well. And thankfully, our host was like, yeah, I was kind of laughing at you, but I didn't say anything because, you know, most of them didn't read English. And if it said pork or had a picture of a pig, that would have been a problem. But it was like a, a little bacon stick figure. So, you know, <laughs> thankfully, no one recognized it, you know. Um, but I've even done that. I've offended people, right? They were looking at me. And if they had known what the shirt said, they would have been like, you're disgusting. You gross me out, right? And we have that feeling towards people. There's just certain people, you know, you, you grow up in a certain neighborhood, you grow up in a certain town, you grow up in a certain, you know, ethnic tradition, and there's things that other groups do, and you're just like, why do they do that? Like, that's weird. Why do they, you know, why do they do things that way? And Jesus is always compelling us to try to cross those uh, barriers, try to break down those barriers. The scripture is very clear that the gospel is for everybody. Again, we're all the wrong people, and the issue is not our cultural preferences. The issue is our sin. That's the real issue. And then cultural preferences come secondary to that, but the issue is our sin. We're selfish. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want to listen to what God says. We're breaking the Ten Commandments. We have enough problem with the Ten Commandments. We need to not make issues of all those other secondary issues, right? And so Peter's being pressed here. I think we're being pressed here, and I want to ask you, who, who are the categories of people that you think are beyond the boundaries, right? Who, who are the people in your life that you're like, God, I believe that you're for all people and that really the problem is sin and that you're the solution. And so I could talk to anybody except for that person, right? We've, we've just all got those lines where functionally we're not willing to cross those lines. And I would say if we want to honor the gospel, we want to be a people that are willing to cross those lines for the sake of the gospel. So, so that's my first question. Who, who are the wrong people for you? And, and what is God pressing you to do about that? How, how are you going to cross that, that bridge? Next thing I want us to, to look at is how the wrong people get right. So we've already mentioned this several times. We believe really spiritually we're all wrong 
because of sin, not because of how we dress or the food we eat. Sin is the issue. Food in the Old Testament was a gift. Uh, The ceremonies in the Old Testament were a gift that God gave to his Old Testament people to symbolize the deeper problem, which was a heart problem. And so today we want to ask that question, what what are uh, the things that have to change in my life? How do the wrong people get right? Look at verse 34. In verse 34, we're kind of teased a little bit. It says, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. If you just read that verse in isolation, which by the way, that's a terrible way to do Bible study. Don't just read one verse and create a doctrine out of it, okay? That's just bad practice. You always want to compare Scripture with Scripture. That's how the Bible uh, makes sense, is when you compare one verse with another verse. Like if I were to write a letter to my kids, and they just say, I just took that one clause of that one sentence of that one paragraph, and I decided to obey that, but ignore everything else you said, I'd be kind of disappointed, right? I'd say, no, you're supposed to read the letter and understand the whole thing. So again, Scripture is supposed to be understood in context. You don't just make doctrine out of one verse. But this one verse would indicate that the way that God shows impartiality is by accepting those who fear him and do what's right. So it'd be easy to create a doctrine of doing out of this text and say, because Cornelius does right things, because he's a good guy, right? We already saw that earlier. Then he's already accepted before God. What we're going to see as the sermon progresses, no, he's, he's not already accepted by God. We're all only accepted by God through the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers. So we're going to continue to read the sermon. It says in verse 36, as for the word of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, this is the punchline, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the explanation. That's the verse that explains the earlier verse. How are people acceptable before God? How, are, how do people even fear God? How are people ever going to do what's right? They they do that by entering through the door of what we refer to as the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that forgiveness of sins is offered in his name, through his life, what he has done. It's interesting here, there's a technical word uh, in verse 38 that says he went about doing good. He went about doing good and healing all those and fighting against the devil. That's In Greek language, that's a technical phrase that they would have used to refer to like the Greek gods. We would Think of a superhero in our terminology. You know, here's a picture of a guy with a cape on. Um, They had superhero demigods, right? Like Hercules or Achilles, those kind of guys. So that language, doing good, is kind of like how, you know, there's certain phrases you hear that like uh, evildoer, right? That's kind of like comic book language for a bad guy, right? So there's this like kind of ring in your ear when you hear certain phrases. And doing good was one of those phrases that would have reminded people of these superheroes of their culture. And they used it specifically for the mythological characters, but they would also use it for, you know, real people like kings and princes and a, you know, a philanthropist that would have 
uh, paid for some new thing in the city. They would use it to talk about maybe a, a doctor or a lawyer or someone who had done good things for the local area, a mayor or something. So here he's using this language, uh, building a cultural bridge, saying Jesus was this kind of guy, what would have been known as like a divine man, someone who was anointed and touched by God. And so this fits both the Greek worldview as well as the Hebrew worldview. And he goes on and he says that they were witnesses of the rest of the story, everything that he did in Jerusalem. And that he didn't just go around doing good things, but he was ultimately killed on the cross. He's ultimately killed on the cross. And as we know from the New Testament, I have a picture here of a cross. Um, That's summary language for how we are forgiven for our sins. Throughout the New Testament, the cross is the language, the word even, that Paul uses to describe the whole story. And so, you know, we have a cross hanging here. Some of you have a cross on your neck. Crosses are symbols that mean something. Um, there's There's not a magic in the thing itself, right? There's not a magic in the symbol. It points to something really important. It points to the story, and that's how wrong people get right. The story is how wrong people get right. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, it says that the power of God for salvation for every man is in the gospel. It's in the gospel itself. And so it's interesting for us to think about it ourselves. How, How do you think, where do you think the power is? What do you think actually makes you right? Do you think you're made right by following the traditions of your culture? Do you think you're made right by looking right? Do you think you're made right by having enough money in the bank? Do you think you're made right by having a good relationship, by having uh, someone who really loves you? Do you think you're made right by having a family that just looks perfect? What are the things that, that you put in that box of, this will make me right, this will make me okay? If I have enough education, I'll be okay. If I have enough money, I'll be okay. If I have enough respect, I'll be okay. Whatever it is, Peter is challenging that. And he's saying, Cornelius, it's great that you're a good guy. It's great that y'all are praying. It's great that y'all are offering alms. But you need to have your sins forgiven through Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus is the way that we're made right. The cross is the symbol of that. Jesus died on the cross to, to absorb the penalty for our sin. And the story goes on. Peter says he rose from the dead. That wasn't the end of the story. He rose from the dead, which shows us that we can also have eternal life as well. And so as we believe in the cross, we're believing in in the whole story, and the power is in the story itself. I said earlier that there is sometimes confusion about trying to bridge the gap between these phrases that say, we've got to do what's right, and then these phrases that say, the only thing that matters is forgiveness of sin. And I just want to give you some cross-references to go to. If you want to study this issue some more yourself, um, you can read Romans 4, 1 through 5. It's a really helpful place to go in Scripture that makes it very clear that the only way we can be saved is by forgiveness of sin. It's not by the works that we do. And then James confuses us a little bit because James says, you know what, if you say you have faith, but there are no works in your life, that faith is dead. So what James is talking about is a fake faith. And those of us that have grown up in the Bible Belt, we know what that is, right? That's, oh, I've prayed the prayer. Oh, I've done that. Oh, I've been there. I've done that. Oh, I cried at camp once, so I'm saved. Well, no, if it's a real faith, it will begin to transform you. It will shake your life up. It'll, it'll change you. And that's what James is speaking about. So another reference that is really good, and this will be my last reference, is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it makes it very clear that we are saved by grace, that we're forgiven by what Jesus did for us on the cross, 
And then that leads to works in our life because it's supernatural. So how do wrong people get right? We get right by trusting Jesus. And what does trusting Jesus do? It changes our heart. So it's no longer just about us, but we actually begin to care for other people. We begin to serve others. We begin to help others. We begin to look right and live right because we've been made right with God through the cross and through the gospel. The last thing that we see is really interesting here. He shares that that final punchline of forgiveness of sins through what Jesus did for us. And then uh, I want to say all heaven broke loose here, okay? I had to think about that, make sure I said the right thing. There's a big change, right? There's a big change, again, because there's this, this cultural habit, this barrier that the Jews were facing that, that they had to be sure that God was really wanting to reach all these other people that they frankly didn't want to reach. So again, I told you, this story is retold multiple times in the book of Acts as the church begins to expand and reach other tribes. And here they see a dramatic showing up of the Holy Spirit, something that I think would scare all of us. Look at verse 44. The gospel's being preached. And then in verse 44, before, this is really funny, before Peter gives an altar call, before Peter says, and you better repent right now, and you better pray this prayer right now before Peter says, I'm going to play this song 10 times until you all come front, right? The Holy Spirit just explodes. Like, the Holy Spirit doesn't wait for Peter to twist any arms. Peter just says, people are saved through what Jesus did, and then the Holy Spirit blows the place up. Look at verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. They were like, oh, wait, we get that God wanted us to talk to these people, but we didn't think the Holy Spirit would actually show up, right? We didn't think they'd actually change. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? It's kind of like, well, I I guess we got to let them in, right? I guess we can baptize them. This is crazy. I can't believe this is happening. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They asked him to remain for some days. So again, you'd think they got it by now, but God just keeps teaching them lessons. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I uh, I wish for more concrete displays of God's work, right? And I think I've shared this with you even last week. I shared some of this. Sometimes we just want to see clear change. Um, I was thinking about this as I was mowing the lawn yesterday because, you know, with all the spring rain we've had, the lawn's getting pretty, pretty high. I have a picture here of my grass. And, um, and so, you know, there's just this, that's a joke. That's not really my yard. Um, but there's this, there's this beautiful feeling of completion when, when you're achieving a concrete task, right? So when you're mowing the lawn, you start out with high grass, you end with low grass, right? And you're like, I've done something. I've accomplished something. Ironing shirts. Any of you like to iron a shirt? Um, as you can tell, I don't do it all the time. But when I do, it's very satisfying, right? Wrinkly shirt, clean shirt. You know, you, there's this transformation. You paint a wall. It's all old and gross looking. You paint it. Something is now completed. And so because we're simple people, just like them, God shows them clearly, no, I'm really at work in these people's lives because it was a hard message for them to get. 
And sometimes God does that for us. Sometimes I've heard a lot of your stories. Sometimes God just, he just screams through a megaphone at you. He's like, change directions. This is what I want you to do. I've seen that in your lives. I've heard that in my own life. He doesn't always communicate this way. So I just want to clarify, God does some, some crazy things in the book of Acts that we don't always see in our everyday experience, right? A lot of times what's normal is when I share the gospel with someone, they repent of their sins, they trust in Jesus, and they begin slowly changing. It's not always miraculous. It's not always like the Holy Spirit blowing up the room. And, and there's two markers that I think we should look for as signs of real change in people's lives. James talks about one of them in James 1.27. This is one of the changes we should look for. He says that religion is, that is really pure, real religion is this, that you care for orphans and widows in their distress and you keep yourself un, uh, unstained from the world. So basically he's saying, here's the real change. The real change is you care for hurting people and you try to live a moral life. That's not quite as exciting as the Holy Spirit blowing the place up and people preaching in other languages and you know all this dramatic stuff. God can still do that if he wants to, but the ordinary markers, I would say, is life transformation of I am going to care for hurting people and I'm going to try to live a moral and obedient life following Jesus. Another frame that the New Testament gives us is in Galatians 5.22. Galatians 5.22, it says this, uh, it uses the language of fruit, um, the language of fruit to describe, got my paperclip and Titus messing me up here. All right. Galatians 5.22 says this. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so I just want to warn you that for most of us, we, we really want God to show up and do something dramatic, right? We want God to just cure our addiction right now. We want God to just transform us and take away all our problems right now. We want God to just blow the place up. But I believe the common miracle, the normal miracle that God works in our hearts is the changing of our character. And through the forgiveness of sins, through trusting in Jesus, he slowly begins changing us and manifesting this fruit. We're actually going to start loving people. We're, we're actually going to start being patient. We're actually going to start expressing joy in our lives. So I want to challenge you, and I'm challenging myself. Man, God, are you, are you doing this in my life? That, that's really what I want you to do. Do I want, it, I, do I want something more dramatic sometimes? Yeah, definitely. I, I'm, I'm always seeking some kind of dramatic sign or something really concrete, something really black and white. But what I really want is I want... God, to make me more like Jesus, that I would actually love people. I wouldn't really care what people think, but I would live my life with a, a joy and a reckless abandon and a, a kind of servant leadership where I'm just willing to care for other people because God has cared for me. I think that's what God is up to in our community. I've seen that happening in your life, and I pray that he would do more of that. And I hope you would pray for that as well. So, so one application point, will you, will you pray that God would make those kind of changes in your life? Will you pray that the Spirit would transform you and start making you new? Second application is this. Will you start praying that God would change the people that you don't think he can change? Going back to the theme, we all have the list of the wrong people in our life. I would ask you to write down who those wrong people are so you can pray for them, but they might be sitting next to you right now. So, so don't write their name down in front of them, right? 
But it's a good idea, right? Write these names, names down, put it on a card maybe. Um, maybe put a little card by some verses, you know, that you want to pray for these people. But begin praying. God's calling you, just like he called Peter, to speak to the people he didn't think he should be talking to. God wants us to be those kind of people too. We break down these barriers that we reach other people, that we love other people, even the people that don't at first blush seem like they're the right kind of people. And that can only take place the more we believe that, you know what? I was the wrong people too. I was the wrong people too, but Jesus changed my heart. Jesus is transforming me. So now I'm the right people only by God's grace, not because of my tribe or ritual or neighborhood or background. I'm, I'm the right people because God has adopted me and put me into his family. And he wants to adopt a bunch of other people too. So pray for those people. Share that message. In John 20, 21, Jesus says, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. His task is to send all of us to bring Jesus to the wrong people. So we're the wrong people too. Let me pray for us and we'll respond and worship together. God, we thank you that you love us, not because of who we are. You love us, not because we're so lovable, not because we're so great. You love us because you love us, as it says in Deuteronomy 7.7. So we thank you. We're humbled by that, and we pray that that would change our hearts, that we would then love other people. We love because you first loved us. Send us out, Lord, as you've sent Jesus into our own hearts. Help us to recognize that we're the wrong people, but you make us the right people by bringing us into your family by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.